Hello and welcome to KRUI 89.7 FM. I am Zoe and I am back from spring break where I spent most of the week in Birmingham, Alabama. So I have been inspired by my time there and what I learned both by talking to community members and at the Civil Rights Institute. So as my part two of from not last Sunday but the Sunday before of black leaders, black and African American leaders you might not have heard of but definitely should, my people today all have some sort of relevance or roots in Birmingham, Alabama. And I learned of all of these people, except one I think I knew of beforehand, at the Civil Rights Institute. So, the first person I, this is the person I knew of before I started, uh, before I went down to Birmingham. He was instrumental in the Civil Rights Movement nationally and in Birmingham itself and his name is Fred Shuttlesworth so I you might have heard of him or after I tell you a few little quick things about him it might spark a little bit of your memory so I'm not doing a full thing a full story on him today but I didn't want to not mention him so Fred Shuttlesworth was a reverend and he grew up in the 1920s, 1930s. He was born in 1922 as Freddie Lee Robinson. And he grew up in rural Alabama. He was part of a poor family, but went to Alabama State College and graduated in 1952. He began preaching in Selma, then took over at Bethel Street Baptist Church in Birmingham. And Bethel Street Baptist Church played a big role in the civil rights activism of the 1950s and 60s in Birmingham. I think Bethel Street Baptist Church and probably the 16th Street Baptist Church are probably two of the most wide-known churches in Birmingham, if not the two most. But he was, as I said earlier, instrumental He in the Birmingham civil rights movement and actually nationally because at this time 19 early 1950s Martin Luther King Jr. who I'm sure we all know was pretty much the face of the civil rights movement of the at least the nonviolent civil rights movement was practicing in Alabama, er, in Atlanta Georgia and he was trying to get his footing trying to start with the movement and get it get it rolling but he wasn't having much success and his success didn't really get going until he went to Alabama. And the reason that he came to Alabama, actually, is because Fred Shuttlesworth invited him. He said, hey, come on over to Birmingham. We need your help, and I think we can help you as well. So MLK comes to Birmingham and starts working in Birmingham and Selma and Montgomery and Mobile and all across Alabama, and that's when he starts becoming more widely known. So Shuttlesworth does that. He also establishes the Alabama for Christians for Human Rights Movement, which replaces the 
NAACP in Alabama because the the state of Alabama actually banned the NAACP from working in Alabama. And so Fred Shuttlesworth creates the Alabama Christians for Human Rights Committee to kind of take over the work that the NAACP was doing there. He works very, very closely with Martin Luther King the entire time during the civil rights movement. He has, he helps integrate the schools there. He takes his kids to enroll. He helps orchestrate a lot of the movements and the marches that took place there. And he's doing all of this despite getting death threats, despite his home being bombed. And he was very, very important. So if you haven't heard of him before, just because this is history overlooked, and I don't know how overlooked he is, but if you haven't heard of him before, I strongly suggest looking up some of the stuff that he did before he died in 2011, because he was very, very important. Anyway, the other four people I'm talking about today are less known, but you might have heard about some of their work. And this is going to be somewhat of a short show today. I think maybe half an hour instead of the usual hour. But I'm still doing four people just as I did last time. And I think they're very cool people. So, James Lawson. James Lawson is from Pennsylvania. He is the son and the grandson of Methodist ministers. And the same year he graduated from high school, he received his preacher's license. So then he goes to school, and this is in the 1950s, same time as the Korean War, and he gets drafted, and he refuses to go. So then he is sentenced to three years in prison, but he's paroled after 13 months due to some work from the United Methodist organization, United Methodist, I don't know what it's called, I should know, I'm United Methodist too, but... Due to some work with the United Methodists, he gets paroled after 13 months on the condition that he goes to India to work as a campus minister and teacher there. So he goes to Hislop College in Nagpur, India, and he spends three years there as a campus minister and a teacher. And while he's there, he's reading in the newspapers about the Montgomery bus boycott and the emerging nonviolence movement in the United States. So while he's there and reading about all of these civil rights movements and marches, he's also learning teachings uh, from Gandhi, not Gandhi himself, but learning Gandhian techniques and nonviolence and techniques And so when he returns to the United States in 1956, he enrolls in the Oberlin School of Theology and then switches it up and decides to go to Vanderbilt Divinity School. And it's in Nashville, where Vanderbilt is located, where he opens a Fellowship of Reconciliation field office. And here he starts teaching volunteers about Gandhian tactics of nonviolent direct action such as how to organize sit-ins. And this is very important for, for students in North Carolina who come to him 
and learned about these sit-ins because sit-ins were very, very big in North Carolina where thousands and thousands of students began, of both white, blacks, and black students sat, conducted sit-ins in stores, restaurants all across North Carolina. And he's doing this because he wants to force the United States to confront the immorality of segregation. However, he faces skepticism from African Americans on this front because nonviolence doesn't seem like it's productive nor efficient. And then, of course, he's also facing backlash from white people who just don't want a civil rights movement of any sort. So he says that he has to teach people that nonviolence is, quote, deeply rooted in the spirituality of Jesus and the prophetic stories of the Hebrew Bible. So then he becomes the primary tutor for SNCC, which is the Student Nonviolent Coordination Committee. And SNCC played very, very, very important roles in the civil rights movement as a whole. It was organized of, created from student, of students. And it was probably like the second biggest, it was at least the second made large organization of people focused on the civil rights movement and nonviolent campaigns. And they coordinated many of the sit-ins, especially in North Carolina, and were also involved with pretty much every event, protest, movement that you saw going on across the South and the North. Then in 1961, James Lawson helped coordinate the Freedom Rides. And the Freedom Rides, which you'll hear about in a little bit, ran from North Carolina, or from the North all the way down to the South. And it's because the South continued to segregate their bus systems, their interstate bus systems, despite it being illegal. So he, James Lawson, helped coordinate this and then also helped coordinate the Meredith March. The night before MLK Jr. died, he actually mentioned Lawson and called him, quote, the leading theorist and strategist of nonviolence of nonviolence in the world. So in 1968, as the pastor of Centenary Methodist Church in Memphis, Lawson played a major role in the sanitation worker strike of 1968. In 1974, Lawson moved to Los Angeles to work as the pastor of the Holman Methodist Church, and there he hosted a weekly call-in show called Lawson Live, where he discussed social and human rights issues affecting minority communities, spoke out against racism, challenged the Cold War, and criticized the United States' worldwide military involvement. So then even he continued to work even after retiring, where he protested with the Janitors for Justice in Los Angeles and with the gay and lesbian Methodists in Cleveland. So that's James Lawson. He is still alive. He's in his 90s. He's still alive. Um, I don't know how much work he's doing He's probably really tired at this point, but he definitely did so, so, so much in the past few decades. So next, 
we have Arthur Davis Shores. And Arthur Davis Shores was an attorney in Alabama. And I'll hear, you will get to hear a little bit more about him after this very quick break. My mom just texted me to tell me that James Lawson is an excellent choice who is often overlooked, and she went to school with his son for a year. So, just fun facts, things you can learn, connections you can make when you're listening to History Overlooked. So, Arthur Davis Shores was born in 1904 and grew up in Tennessee, where he attended a schooling there for the first 16 years of his life before having to leave the school due to familial job arrangements, but then attended his last few years of high school in Birmingham, and then the attended the University of Kansas and graduated in 1934. He then decided to go to law school and passed the Alabama bar in 1937 when he began defending in court and during this time there were in general very few black attorneys in Alabama and the few that did that were there often didn't feel comfortable as I'm sure makes plenty of sense didn't feel comfortable actually trying the cases in court so they would do all of the work and represent these people outside of court, but then when it came time to actually go to court and defend them in front of a judge, they would hand over all of their information and their work to a white attorney and have the white attorney actually try the case. So Arthur Davis Shores was the first person, the first person in, in Alabama to change this, the first attorney. So he was the first black attorney to actually represent his own clients in court. And his first two years of cases were mostly divorces and unpaid debts. But in 1939, he tried a police brutality case against a white Birmingham police officer. And he won. So this Birmingham police, this white Birmingham police officer was convicted of assaulting a black labor leader named Will Hall. And at this point, Shores was already involved with the NAACP, but after this case, they were very impressed by him and decided to make him an integral part of their civil rights work in the South. So he starts working with a group of attorneys from the NAACP, including Thurgood Marshall, and starts trying tons and thousands of cases with the NAACP. In fact, just in 1963 with the Birmingham campaign, there were thousands of demonstrators who were arrested, and Shores represented more than 3,000 of these demonstrators. In 1969, he became... He was appointed to the Birmingham City Council, and he was the first black person to be appointed. 
And he, after being the first black person to serve on the city council, and after being appointed, he was elected for the next few years and eventually served for a total of nine years on the city council. He was involved in desegregation cases as well during the height of his career, such as Arthur and Lucy, which you'll hear in next, Vivian Malone and James Hood, who all three of whom worked to desegregate the University of Alabama. And he's doing all of this, again, another person whose home was bombed. His home in Birmingham was bombed twice in 1963, but he didn't stop. So that, that's Arthur Davis Shorts, the first black person to represent his own clients in court in Alabama, someone who was instrumental in desegregation cases and who got some got a white police officer convicted of police brutality in 1939 which is something that's very hard to do now in 2019 so he's a very very intelligent good person who is very involved with the civil rights movement and as i said he helped try the case of author and lucy and she is our next person so she was born on october 5th 1929 in shiloh alabama and she attended selma university in selma alabama and earned a teaching certificate then went to miles college in birmingham where she earned a bachelor's degree in english but she still wasn't done learning she Loved, loved, loved learning. She wanted to go to a graduate school. And she, at Miles College, met Polly Ann Myers. And she and Polly are talking. And Polly wants to go to graduate school, too. And Polly says, let's go to the University of Alabama at Birmingham. And at this point, no, that was a completely segregated school. There were absolutely, there's not a single black person who went to school there, nor who ever had and a few years after this happened, author and Lucy says of Polly Ann, suggesting that they go there, quote, I thought she was joking at first. I really did. But she and Polly Ann Myers enroll at UAB for its graduate program and are accepted in 1952. But then they go into the admissions office probably just to check in on their admissions process, to get some forms filled out, whatever it might be. And that's when the university officials realized that they were African-American. And so when they arrive and these people see that despite all of their merit and this, despite the fact that they got in on their own accord, once those admission officials see these two women's skin tone, they decide, no, you can't come to school here. So they are barred from enrolling. So now Arthur Shores, as you just heard about, and Thurgood Marshall reach out to these girls and they at this point are working with the NAACP and they assist them in petitioning for admittance. But Brown v. Brown v. Board, which desegregated schools nationwide, happens in 1954 and they decide to confront the University of Alabama again. So then they actually go to court with this, and in the summer of 1955, 
a federal judge rules that the university has to admit the two women. So they reapply, but only one of them gets accepted. And that is because the University of Alabama had a rule that was against marriage outside of wedlock. And when she applied, Polly Ann Myers was not married, but she was pregnant. So they did not accept her application on the grounds that she was pregnant outside of wedlock. So Lucy preys on this and decides that she's going to just attend by herself. And on February 1st, 1956, she becomes the first black student to enroll at the University of Alabama on the condition that she's not allowed to live on campus, nor is she allowed to eat in the cafeteria. So she starts attending classes, and by the third day of her classes, her family had been receiving threats via phone, just constant braiding and threats. And on her third day, a huge mob appears and... They have deadly threats against Lucy. They chase her, they scream at her, they throw things at her, and she locks herself in a room and prays. And eventually she gets home by a car ride from police officers because it's just not safe for her with the mob. So then she is barred, she's expelled, and she's barred from attending the school once again this time on the grounds that it's unsafe for her. So Thurgood Marshall and Arthur Shores come in again and they file a formal complaint saying that the university, among other things, that the university conspired with the aggressors. Though they withdraw the claim, the board uses it as grounds to permanently expel Lucy because she made, quote, false and baseless, unquote, accusations against UAB. But then, years later, she's invited to speak in a history class. And in 1988, when she speaks with this history class, she inspires some of the professors there. And these professors decide that they want her to finally be able to attend the University of Birmingham, or the University of Alabama at Birmingham. So the school lifts her expulsion and she is finally able to enroll to receive her master's in education. She graduates in 1992, same as her daughter, from the same school. And that same year, UAB establishes a scholarship in her honor. All right. Here's the last person for today. As I said, it is going to be a short show. So this is Irene Morgan who is the Morgan referenced in the case of Morgan versus the Commonwealth of Virginia. So this case, if you remember about 15 minutes ago, I mentioned the freedom rides from northern United States down to the southern United States. And this happened because of the illegality of the South in continuing to have segregated buses despite there being a law against segregation of interstate buses. So, 
this all happened because of Irene Morgan. And Irene Morgan stood up to segregation on buses 11 years before Rosa Parks. And you might have heard of Claudette Colvin, who I've mentioned on the show before, who was one of four women who actually stood up against this a few years before Rosa Parks and are the four women who went to court about segregation, desegregating buses. But Irene Morgan was the first, and hers happened in the North. So she was born uh, on April 9th, 1917, in Baltimore, Maryland, as the granddaughter of slaves. And she had gone to visit her mother in Virginia and wasn't feeling well. She had recently suffered a miscarriage, and she gets on the bus goes back to the colored section of the bus and takes a seat in the colored section. But about an hour into the trip, a white couple comes on board and the bus driver tells both Irene Morgan and the young mother next to her who is holding an infant that they need to stand to let the white couple sit down. Even though they're in the colored section of the bus, they have to stand up and let the white couple sit. So she, Irene Morgan, refuses and also says to the mother next to her, this isn't a quote, I can't remember what the quote actually is, but says, where are you going? You have a baby. Like, you should be allowed to sit down. You are holding an infant in your arms. You are technically following the rules of the segregation of this bus. Like, you deserve a seat. I do, too. So she refuses to sit and or to stand, and the bus driver pulls into the nearest town. And she gets off the bus. She's Officers are trying to arrest her, but she tears up the arrest warrant and actually kicks one of the officers in the groin. And she is charged with resisting arrest and violating Virginia's Jim Crow, Jim Crow transit laws. So she seeks counsel from the NAACP, And good old Thurgood Marshall takes her case, and it goes to the Supreme Court as Irene Morgan versus the Commonwealth of Virginia. And she wins, and buses are desegregated, with a vote of six to one. So this court case makes interstate transport racial segregation illegal. So buses that are traveling between states cannot be segregated so that is freaking huge it's freaking huge she did this on her own accord she understood that it was wrong and she helped this massive massive case go through and it's a case that i had never heard about before going to the civil rights institute and you might not have either um but she still didn't get to achieve all that she wanted to achieve. So in the 1980s, she receives a college scholarship after winning a radio contest. And so she's finally able to attend college. And she receives her bachelor's degree in communications from St. John's University in 1985 at the age of 68. Five years later, in 1990, at the age of 72, 72, She earns her master's degree in urban studies from Queens College. And then, long overdue, in 2001, along with Muhammad Ali, Hank Aaron, and 25 others, 
Irene Morgan received the Presidential Citizens Medal from President Bill Clinton. And in 2010, she's inducted to the Maryland Women's Hall of Fame. She unfortunately died in 2007 from complications from Alzheimer's. But she, such, such, such a cool woman. And there's a documentary that reference. there are a few documentaries that reference her. But one called You Don't Have to Ride Jim Crow. A person named Robert Washington says of Irene, quote, if you know the name Rosa Parks, you need to know the name Irene Morgan, unquote. So that's the story of Irene Morgan and all the other people that I talked about today, all very, very cool people, very instrumental black leaders that you might not have heard about, but definitely should. And that's the end of the show for today. Um, I have to read the weather, though. So it's springtime, finally springtime. It's 52 degrees outside. It might start raining around 6 o'clock, but it's not going to drop below 40 degrees until 3 a.m., and then it'll be back up to 40 degrees again by noon tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be a cooler day at only 48 degrees. Sunsets at 7.21 p.m., sunrise at 7 a.m., and as always, remember what Harry Truman says, the only thing new in the world is the history you do not know. I'll see you next week.